Hello, everyone, on one of my, probably one of my favorite podcasts to probably record for just about anybody, uh, Pod Save America. God, we love Pod Save America. What you guys are doing with John Favreau, I think it's great. You know, John Favreau did Iron King, and Robert Downey Jr. was, he was very glad to, to do Iron Man and to do Lion King, because Iron Man brought him right up out of the... He was ba- he was done basically, you know. He had the thing with the whore. What's the Hugh Jackman, the guy from Notting Hill, and he had the problem with the whore, and he was and he was not uh, happy about it, and he did drugs, and he uh, did crimes and everything. And now he gets to be Iron Man. He gets to zoom around, and I got to meet Iron Man, and I can say, very strong, very big, and yellow and red, and. We're very happy with with I with Hawkeye. Hawkeye's music career is also going very good, and I had a lot of fun with Mr. Renner talking to him. So we love John Favreau. We love Chef. Don't we love Chef? We thought it was great. So yeah. I wanted to call it God Save America and say we you know what we love what you do. You're great Americans, okay? Maybe we don't always see I I maybe we don't always think the same thing, but. A lot of the times we do, so I think a lot of the people think that I'm doing pretty good, even with, with liberal and with left and all of it. I think we're probably doing better with those people than than the right. I mean, we, I've got more liberal and lefty than just about just about anybody. A lot more than Tupac Shakur's mom, and a lot more than Mr. Chomsky. Uh, Mr. Chomsky, a real not a looker, not a looker, not very pretty. Not a very pretty boy. <laughs> and he gives away all the stuff for free. I said, no, me. No, man, you've got to start charging some money for some of it, all right? You've got to make, what, how do you, how do, what do you eat on? How do you sleep at night? And, well, you know, it gives you that glassy-eyed stare. Isn't it great? Oh, none of those social people, the, none of the, the left or the liberals or anybody, would, would it kill you to smile? Would it kill you to smile once? God, what an unfuckable group of losers. <laughs> really big shame. Oh, everybody yes. looks like, oh, everybody looks like Abby Hoffman. And, uh, oh, it's all inaccessible. Andy Kaufman. And, uh, I'm, a, I'm wearing a green blazer. I, I'm dressed like I'm in the Cuban <laughs> military. It's so accessible. Anyway, I heard that today you guys are talking about reading today and... I'm a big reader. I love to read. I love to read. I'm uh, Ender's Game. <laughs> I love to read, and I'm reading reading a lot. We're reading more than you've ever seen. The amount the amount that I read would make your head spin. And so you're doing reading theory today. You know, kids learn the sound, okay? So they learn sound, and then they learn letter, okay? So it goes sound, and then letter, and then they learn syntax, where they put the letters in a big row. And then all of a sudden you're looking at sentence. So you send the sentence through the syntax and you end up with paragraph and all of a sudden you're reading book. So I think it's really great that you do <laughs> And I wanted to say great job, everybody, with Bod Save America. And I, I really, really like it. I really like it when people dealt when people shove ideology down my throat and tell me what to believe. I hope you have a great night and don't go Biden because nothing matters. Lock them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law.
definitely oh. he knew that we were not. <laughs> You're listening to the beginning of the second presidential debate, 2020. <laughs> well, now, it's just Andrew incredible that he was beat. He was pretending to mix us up with Pod Damn America or with Pod Save America. Look at me. Wow. And while Look at him. also confusing John Favreau with John Favreau. <laughs> from season two of The Sopranos, that John Favreau. <laughs> I like yeah, that he decided for his spin on Trump to be what if Trump talks about politics? That's the thing he normally talks about. <laughs> I thought he was going to talk about Halloween. <laughs> I like I like the fact that he had like when people do Trump impressions, it's either like too much like rasp or a little bit too like nasally and whiny. And he hit like that perfect balance, man. The intonation is perfect. Yeah. 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 The way that the, the sentences ramble, too, is really well done. That's my problem with doing Trump impressions is that it's so easy to be way too coherent to be Trump. You know, he loses himself like halfway through saying something and then starts and then has to put an exclamation in. So great job on that. Yeah, he has right. an improvi- improvisational way of like thinking, which is cool. But it's funny about like impressions is... Everyone the other day was like, damn, this guy nailed it. And it was like, yeah, he kind of did. Why did it take four years? This was year four. <laughs> Trump's brain is so hard to replicate that it took four years of work for comedy to kind of produce like this thing where you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes he trails off and then he sings a little bit. And he goes back up and As a culture, we got a third of the way there and we're like, that's quite enough. And yeah. uh, for like four years, we got stuck with fucking Alec Baldwin, yo. Like, it's about time, dude. It's about time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if it gets too good, you can't let Alec Baldwin do it anymore. And no one wants that. We all want to see Big Al on the stage hitting the big notes. Yeah. Well, I think it's also because when we were growing up, like, everybody had a Bush. Everybody had a Clinton. I had a Clinton and a Bush, too. And sometimes they would get mixed up with each other. I would I would get mixed up doing the impression about which president I was doing. And now the, like, I 10 guess... 10-year-olds with a Clinton impression <laughs> around the house. I mean, do 10-year-olds now do Trump? I don't know. But, like, I think comedians just don't want... Because it's... I mean, this has been said a thousand times. It's, it's hard to top the real thing with Trump. And that includes, like, doing the impression. Like, that's... I mean, obviously, this is great, but... Like I mean, most- Trump himself is like a road comic, though, right? Yeah, he was because <laughs> yeah, yeah, he himself Seriously. is a comedian. He's got chops. Yeah, I doing a was- Trump impression is meta because he's already a performer. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and uh- he did. He basically was a road comic because before, while he was doing The Apprentice, and even before that, every week he'd do like five like industry conventions in like you know Indiana, like some like granite con dealers convention or some shit and he would give these speeches and they just let him go off and he would like and he just learned over time how to be funnier and funnier and be more entertaining and then he ran for president and it just went like fucking to a, an 11 yeah he's kind of like a corporate comic right yeah like, um, uh, <laughs> yeah. That the shit Dan that, Ninen of yesteryear Dan Ninen or what the fuck is that other guy the fucking con artist guy uh, whose name's escaping Banksy. me right now Nah, Banksy. the one with like the channel where he didn't pay anyone. I don't know. He's one of those guys who oh, figures out a way uh, to get Steve um, Steve Hofsetter. He's a, yes, he's yes. like the worst Steve Hofsetter. He like cut his <laughs> teeth playing um you know Audi fucking conventions and shit. Um, Donald Trump owns Heckler. Yeah, can you imagine if Trump planted him. a Heckler and then just like roasted him? <laughs> like had that's the perfect next rebuttals. Step. Yeah. Well, he did roast. He roasted this guy at one of his rallies because it was a supporter that he confused with the protester. And as the uh, 
like he was saying to the guy like it was like this fat dude he was saying to him like look at that guy over there look at that fat. i know i know i'm big but jeesh look at him and mind you this is one of his supporters and after the rally reporters were like yo were you not mad he was like nah i know i'm fat you know what i mean it's an honor roasted Honestly, they love that shit, yo. If you're, they love being roasted by him. If you're a good comedian, that's also what they say, you know? They're, like, delighted that you fucked with mm -hmm. them. Well, uh, <laughs> that uh, fucking opening sketch was uh, James Austin Johnson, who's a very funny comic, so you should follow him. He'll be listed in our show notes and all that shit. Uh, nice of him to open the show today. Let's officially start. I'm Jake Flores. Alex Patak is here. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Classic. Anders Lee is here. Anders Lee here. And joining us uh, is Aaron Thorpe, you may know from Twitter, uh, whose name on Twitter is Posadist Trap God. Yo, what's up, y'all? Thanks for uh, stopping by. And uh, also, since we're going to be talking a little bit of theory later in the show, and I happen to have uh, a, a smart person around, I grabbed my uh, <laughs> friend and roommate, Sean KB from the Antifada. Welcome. Hi, I'm a theory person. Thank you. I just, yeah, I, I need to, like, sometimes it's, I have to borrow your brain for no, shit. please. I'm happy to do it. I destroy I'm very happy hair. Sean is here, because if Sean wasn't here, I would be, like, floundering right uh, now. Well, you know? no pressure, guys, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, before we get into talking, you know, theory and Marxism and capital and stuff like that, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the news. Dicks are out. Uh, dicks out for Harambe. <laughs> Um, it's kind of impossible not to do a recap of this if you have a political comedy podcast, so let's just bang right through it. We all heard about the Jeffrey Tubin thing, the New Yorker guy. That was pretty funny. Um, he was on a Zoom Agreed. call, and I guess that he had his dick out, but he said that he was, like... He said he wasn't masturbating or something? No, I think he did. He They clarified the story later to say that it was a sturbation situation. Uh, other if, situation would it have been like, I just, the day of, I mean, it'd be like we have to confirm it but it's just like no i was under attack nah, <laughs> you make an adjustment i don't know how well, well hung you are but you know my uh my cashew peen needs a little you know flicking every now and again what and the maybe that i mean sometimes your dick just fall out man yes <laughs> <laughs> you adjust yourself in your seat and your dick just comes tumbling out you know <laughs> I think that the story with the Jeffrey Tubin thing, and I won't like beat the story to death or whatever. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know. It's part of, uh, <laughs> because it's also we like, need Sean here. He's the theory guy. It's been <laughs> talked about to death or whatever. Is that I guess what they were in the middle of was something that New Yorker writers do, which is a uh, an election simulation game on Zoom, and I guess Fucking on a nerds. break. He just started jacking off and then accidentally <laughs> turned his like screen back on or something. Oh, well, it was, he was supposed to be the out. Supreme Court. Yeah. Some people said, oh, it was a break, but it was a breakout session. So, like, you know, how sometimes on a really big Zoom call, you go into smaller Zoom calls. And there were, and so I think it was still during the meeting. And his job in the like simulation election was to be the courts. Hmm. And his whole thing is a legal scholar dude, right? He's like the go-to correspondent at CNN for legal stuff. He, he, he writes the New Yorker on it. He covered the OJ trial. So he has an opportunity to actually imagine himself in a huge position of power in, I guess, the Supreme Court of the United States. And if you're that guy, of course you're going to stroke it at that point. That's like of the course. Yeah, I, that's the, the fucking. What are you going to keep being at work? 
I well, to him, that. this is like his absolute fucking, you know, dream job that he's probably never going to have, uh, but he's probably fantasized about a lot. So there's probably, you know, a sexual uh, drive to it. I guess. So well, you maybe seem he like just you've does taken this all the, the angle the New York Post has <laughs> taken, which is it could have happened to anyone. <laughs> we all have to be understanding right now. <laughs> I mean, it. No, it shouldn't. I mean, I. I don't think you should masturbate two people without the way, without them knowing and agreeing to it. So no, I'm. I'm not on his his side. But I, that's just me trying to understand his pathology. Okay, I appreciate the psychoanalysis. Because yeah. we do need to get in the heads of these people to understand the true story here. Yeah. Okay. Sean, what does theory have to teach us about wanking off on a Zoom call? What form of labor is that? <laughs> I would rather take it from a philosophical, maybe metaphysical um, perspective. I think that you have to you have to do an imminent critique of of the brains of these people. You need to see what comes out mm-hmm. and what unfurls from their own psychological, mm-hmm. psychosexual perversions. And so I think that we need to uh, basically do dialectics on Jonathan Tubin to understand what would compel him to put his penis out like that. Okay. Uh, well, all right. So if I understand dialectics correctly, thesis, I feel like jacking off. <laughs> Antithesis. <laughs> I'm at work. Yes. <laughs> Synthesis, but it's a Zoom call, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, guys. If That's I what I was looking for. turn off the camera, it's all right. fine. All right. All right. So you guys See, got I've this. You guys felt, got theory. <laughs> I've always felt like uh, dialectics is too heady of a term, and the, the term I like to use actually fits in very well with this, and that's just rubbing. Mm. <laughs> say rubbing instead of dialectics and that's that's literally what was happening here so. well that, that you is... always call dialectics rubbing you're saying <laughs> that it, it works for you all the time yo for all real time, yeah. like that is a very like ridiculous like you've, it's a silly ass metaphor but so i've been we'll get into this a little later when i talk about capital but i'm watching the david harvey lectures mm-hmm. that go yeah. along with capital and he literally does use that metaphor he says he rubs rubbing, for the uh, for the class he, he shows it. He acts it out. It's it's brilliant. He says you rub two sticks together, okay. and then they create a fire, right? And the fire is jacking off <laughs> while you're pretending to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg or something. <laughs> um, the contradictions word. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. That shit was funny, right? And I guess the thing that was really funny to me about it was that he just sort of gave up the game and he was like, I, I was there's just like no way to say I was not jacking off. So let's, you know, um, move the goalposts is jacking off. Not okay. You know, <laughs> busting makes you feel bad, <laughs> but you know, it's just funny. Like people try to defend him and shit. Like somebody was like, what he deserves right now, some blue check, uh, what he deserves is forgiveness. Mm. And, um, like, you know, people should be kind and stuff. And I'm like, yo, if that shit happened to any working class person, I'm not saying that you should be beaten off and like the electronic <laughs> department at the Walmart that you work at. I'm not saying that, but if you did, like you would not get forgiveness at all from yeah. your employer, right? Like, yeah. Come on. Yeah. No, in Capital, Marx talks about how when you would jack off in a factory, it would create surplus value uh, <laughs> because you would turn everyone on so much. And <laughs> that came, you know, from nothing. Um, and your comb is reproducible. <laughs> exactly. So. Right. 
And if you look at the materials, how much cum does it take to make a sweater? And what is its use value from there? Yeah. 20 gallons of cum to come to make a coat. Yeah. <laughs> so a coat is for whatever reason way worse. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the, the nightmare to imagine a coat made out of cum. Ah, uh, yeah. Um <laughs> So the other person who got caught jacking off this week was Rudy Giuliani, which uh, we brought Sean back on the show to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I'm also the Giuliani correspondent. Returning yeah. homo thug expert, <laughs> Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Weren't we at the beach telling somebody about that book just recently? I think so. Yeah. I, for anyone who didn't hear that episode, I, we I have telling a, Jeffrey Tubin. <laughs> Remember? I have a, a book. He got that so turned on. <laughs> couldn't contain himself. Old roommate of mine found a book on the subway that's just called Homo Thug. Thug, and it's got a picture of Rudy Giuliani on the cover, and it's like a conspiracy <laughs> theory book about how he's like secretly gay and in the mafia or something. It's quite a read. It's Brilliant. also uh, a text that you should read in a reading group and not <laughs> attempt on your own, like Capital. <laughs> you might end up jerking you off David too much. You need David Harvey to come explain Homo Thug at the <laughs> end. <laughs> There's all these lectures. Acute British analysis. <laughs> yeah. Medical, prime family, and so forth. They love to beat it on the A train. <laughs> David Harvey explaining this. I mean, when we had Sean on, I think one of the things we discussed is is uh, Rudy Giuliani. I'm, I, I don't know. I normally don't like psychoanalyzing people, but I'm just on a tear today. Um, Giuliani has like this fucking devil may care attitude about everything because. He survived a cancer scare when he was mayor uh, right before 9-11 happened. And after that, like his popularity just soared through the roof. And so he has this feeling of like invincibility. And mm. I think that's what's going on here. Like, you know, there, there was maybe a half second where he was somewhat resistant to having sex with what he thought was a 15 year old girl. And then he's like, oh, she she wants to do this. I don't even have to like hit on her. There's Let's no way. This yeah. is Borat's daughter. Borky, yeah. <laughs> I'm America's mayor. <laughs> yeah, he's got like the new lease on life like Trump has now. Right. When oh, a politician yeah. almost dies, they come back and they're like carefree and stuff. That's dangerous stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you think he ever role plays where the bedroom is like ground zero and he's walking around naked? <laughs> just <laughs> Leaving yeah. with confidence. So he, gets the power. <laughs> he gets pegged with a twin tower fucking dildo. That's like eight He's just pointing long. to girls around the room. Someone fuck that girl. <laughs> no, but Andrews, you were saying that like this kind of sense of infallibility that he has. And I was um, watching this Fox interview with the man where he was like, mind you, this is like right after like Trump got COVID and shit. And this motherfucker is like up there talking about like how it's not that serious while coughing throughout the whole interview, yeah. yo. And I was just like, bro, can you imagine like what godlike drunk power you must have to sit there and just deny the fact that like you're dying inside you? That's so fucking funny. Dude. Yeah, I don't. Trump is also impossible to psychoanalyze. I, I'm that's I'm having a really hard time squaring that story with this other thing that I read about him this week, which is that apparently when he stormed out of that 60 Minutes interview he did, he scolded the person interviewing him for not wearing a mask, which is like really funny because he's the guy, he's Trump, you know, he's the guy who was like, it's not a big deal, but apparently post having COVID, he's become like a like a mask crusader a little bit some of the time. Well, it's That's how you know he's going to lose because he's care lording. Yeah. <laughs> he, he does that with cussing, too, because I remember this is back in like 2016. Um, 
the, uh, he was talking to a journalist and she was like, I, you use a lot of foul language on the campaign trail. Don't, don't you think that'll like piss off evangelical voters? And he, he answers with, do you want to say that again without the swear word in it? She actually says, uh, okay, do you think that will upset evangelical voters? And he's like, thank you. <laughs> and yeah. then just proceeds to say he never swears and it's just all made up or exaggerated. He swears all the time. Like He doesn't have a consistent yeah. brain. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, I'm just convinced like that he's not actually a real person and he's just like the personification of id. You know what I mean? Like I don't need that's why I think it's also just hard to make fun of him. You kind of saying this, Jake. It's like it's too meta, man. You know, I think that's what the South Park guy said at first, like right after the election, where they like it didn't I think have his likeness on the show for a minute because it was like, how do you parody that? Yeah. Right. It's like making fun of a wave or a sunset. <laughs> yeah. I like this. We're getting into Freud and Marx. We're doing Deleuze. Um, so interesting thing about what happened to Giuliani, right, is that the story is that he's in the new Borat movie, which comes out at midnight tonight. So we'll know definitively what happened like tomorrow or when this episode comes out. Nice. But uh, apparently Sasha Baron Cohen got him because part of the new movie is that he's got this uh, 24-year-old actress who plays his daughter, and his daughter is 15, like the character is 15. And, uh, you know, Borat, it's, it's easy to forget this about Borat, but technically he's like a journalist is the whole concept right. of the character. Um, and so his daughter is like a, also a journalist, and I guess she told Giuliani that she wanted to interview him for something and then he like invited her back into a hotel room or something and he just started jacking off and his defense and we'll find out because this is all in a fucking movie his defense is that he was like just furiously trying to tuck in his shirt <laughs> oh my god bro what the fuck and Trump defended him on this. Did you see the tweet where he's like, it was a tuck in all caps? <laughs> like a Seinfeld episode. Right, right, right. Tuck. It was yeah. just a tuck. No yeah. fuck. Shirts tuck. can be hard, though. I mean, all joking aside, but um, that guy was definitely pounding off to what he thought was a child. But I guess what really sticks to me is that he's 76 years old and still like this monstrously, like yeah. sexually. Yeah. You'd think yeah. it would just drop off for a while because it's a huge liability, but he's invincible. Yeah. Yeah, I would think that your dick would just stop working, you know? You know what I mean? Yes, we'll all find like, out. Just- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think those guys are probably pumped full of, like, Cialis and shit. And, like, right. you know. I, I think that easy access to young women uh, is, is pretty mm. common among the Giulianis of the world, right? They exist in this kind of rarefied sphere where they're celebrities as well as politicians. And I'm sure that Giuliani's been in a situation where he's managed to, like, bag a 22 year old reporter girl because that's just like he's powerful and he has money. Right. So, is he in, okay, is he in Epstein's but if book? Yeah, if he's been around all these young women, who's been procuring them for him? It doesn't make any sense. All right, so I want to talk about that a little bit. That's why this is not just a funny story about someone jacking off, but there's uh, there's some pith to this, right? Um, he's trying to reframe what happened, 
right? And it's funny because it's like, no, that movie's coming out. I don't know how the fuck films like Borat are made where they're just like allowed to use secret footage and it's legal and all this shit. But that movie's coming out and it's probably going to disprove all the shit he was saying because he was saying he called the cops. He was saying he's a fan of Borat and he, you know, he was yeah. bragging that he didn't get got by Borat, even though this is the most got anyone has ever gotten <laughs> by Borat. Right? Um, but I think that the real story that we can kind of perceive you know through all the ways that like the fox news stories and shit are framing this is uh it's there and it's gonna be i don't know a little bit it's gonna be undeniable and i wanted to kind of transpose this over another story that happened regarding sasha baron cohen right so i was reading about this yesterday and uh there's a piece i think this person named fucking who tweeted this sadville um I'm not exactly sure where this is from, but it'll be in the show notes. So there's a story of hey, what happened. It's a Sadville. It's a is story. Like Farmville? Um, <laughs> it's a fucking Twitter account. It's much worse. Okay. <laughs> um, I think this happened when they were filming the, uh, the Amer- This is America, or the fuck the, his other show was called. Yeah, on Showtime, yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. here's the excerpt. Speaking with Deadline, Cohen revealed his Gio Maldonado character filmed an interview with an unspecified Las Vegas hotel concierge that broached the subject of Harvey Weinstein's sexual assault cases. Cohen then pivoted towards extreme comedy, implying his character had molested a young boy, though the concierge didn't react as anticipated. He said, we thought that guy would leave the room, recalled Cohen. Instead, this concierge stayed in the room, and I go, listen, I go, listen you've got to help me get rid of the problem. And this guy starts advising the character Gio on how to get rid of the issue. We even at one point talked about murdering the boy and the concierge is just going, well, listen, I'm really sorry. In this country, we can't just drown the boy. This is America. We don't do that. Cohen went on to explain how the concierge offered to connect him with a lawyer to silence the boy, but that wasn't the <laughs> end of it. His character next inquired if the concierge boy uh, would fetch him a date with a boy, is a quote, Lower than bar mitzvah, but older than eight. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. Oh my God. And the concierge the spot. reportedly replied, yeah, I could put you in touch with somebody who can get you some boys like that. Oh so here's what happened, right? There, he's, he thought there's no way. This person will break the scene. He'll leave the scene, right? Uh, and he started asking this concierge to, like, supply him with a fucking human trafficked child and instead what happened is that this concierge who works for fucking harvey weinstein and famous you know people like that and powerful people just started telling him oh yeah i can get you a boy (laughs) and so what happened with this story is that they didn't include it in the tv show because it became a legal issue and they reported it to the fbi who did nothing so god that is in the show though i saw that wait it is yeah Oh, okay. I must have got that part of the story Is there, wrong. like, part of it that's cut or anything? Um, Did they get the boy? Yeah, so it says the stunt was considered too dark and wrong, even for This Is America, and co- the Cohen team subsequently sent their footage to the FBI to investigate. According to Cohen, the Bureau evidently decided not to pursue the matter, though the actor noted this concierge had said that he'd worked for politicians at various billionaires. Mm. I guess they ultimately Jeez, left dance. it in. I wonder why. Jesus Christ. <laughs> right. Like, that's when you hit those levels of power where even, like, the FBI is like, nope, we're not yeah. touching this one. Uh, <laughs> nope. It's like yeah. uh, Acosta said about Epstein. Um, he's untouchable. He's with intelligence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This really does lead grade. you to believe that if you just put on a vague European accent, you can get away with far more 
in public than you had ever assumed otherwise. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I'm going to use this for yet, but it's good to have in my arsenal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess specifically with Tris trying to like, I don't know, walk into like the Bloomberg building and shit like that. Remember we did that back in the fucking days when we go outside? We tried oh, yeah, to I went to the Bloomberg office and I did full COINTELPRO on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what happened? I don't remember this. This is for our live I, show. To, remember the last... To get all the merch. Oh, to get the, the I told Bloomberg them I was Bloomberging campaign. my yeah. office up and we were uh-huh. going to go get all the Bloomberg heads and come back and all decked out in Bloomberg stuff and then like throw hats at the office. And they were like, that's so exciting to see young people like you energized <laughs> for Mike. Mike, Mike, Mike. I'll start doing it. Yeah, that was for um, if before COVID, we were supposed to have a residency at Caroline's Comedy Club where we did these political shows. We only got to do the one on Super Tuesday, and we opened it by uh, ripping up a bunch of Bloomberg shirts and shit like wrestlers. It was really stupid. That's and how being we introduced them. as uh, John Flores, uh, Andrew Lee, and Alex. Ellipses, 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 ellipses. Attack? <laughs> question mark. Right. Of Pod Save America. <laughs> From Pod Save America. Yeah. Right. Um, well, anyways, so that's all that happened. Also, Bolivia stuff happened. Uh, the Moss party. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, <yeah>. also, also <laughs> more, more importantly, not the, only were people jacking off, but the socialists <laughs> retook Bolivia. Can you believe it? Maybe that's what <laughs> excited Tubin so much. Maybe he was celebrating. Yeah, famous. maybe it was like an angry jack off kind of thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, we had this. Maybe he used to have a Bolivian girlfriend and it reminded her of him of it. Yeah, the most likely he was triggered. (laughs) I daren't speculate on it. Yeah, I mean, this is an important political podcast, so we're not going to talk about Bolivia. We're talking more about jacking off. Uh, You know, if you want to hear a silly Bolivian shit, you can listen to, um, you know. Pod save America. Pod save now America. or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I mean, probably most other shows this week. Yeah. <laughs> as long as we're talking about COINTELPRO situations, I, you know, and will admit to possibly being involved with a. It, this also involves jacking off with a, uh, a a plot to intercept and sort of overthrow and and spy on, really seduce uh, Janine Añez, who was the <laughs> former president of Bolivia. Um, I, I did work with the gray zone to get, uh, Intel from her that led to Arce's, uh, victory, um, yeah. from, from the, this, I sexually seduced her. Yeah. Mm. Anders was yeah, a honey potted. Yes. Thank you. Honey potted. This is now uh, I can confirm. It's called operation Kratom pot. Declassified. You get a girl to stick around and maybe throw up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, so what I really wanted to talk about this week, uh, you know, now we got uh, all the important topical news of the day out of the way, is uh, Capital, the uh, famous. Book, book. No, uh, 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 young adult novel. It's the goddamn Necronomicon. It's a, it's a powerful book. It's a source of many things. And I wanted to talk about it because uh, I am a fan of uh, Aaron on Twitter. Uh, he does good posts. Uh, Don't I, forget his great podcast that just came out. Time of Monsters. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to talk about uh, your new show. Uh, but I, I guess I got kind of fixated on something that happened last week, which is that you just started talking about how 
you hadn't read Capital, and then you started reading it and tweeting about it. And I thought this yeah. was kind of an interesting, relatable moment because I have kind of like, I don't know, a lot of anxiety about that book. It's a big piece of shit phone book. I also own it, <laughs> yeah. and I've also never sat down and read it. And I yeah. think that that kind of uh, that in itself is kind of a political issue if you're like a leftist. There's these questions mm. in like organizing and doing fucking bullshit media like we do and stuff of whether you know you are required to read all this theory whether you're required to read specifically probably this the mm. source of a lot of other theory um whether you can expect everyone to read it and uh, i've always just fucking been i've been meaning to knock it out for a long time but um you know kind of happened with me right is it yeah. my little journey here is i was a sociology major way way back when i was a young person and uh and then I kind of fell off, but I got, I read shit from Capital. I read like excerpts and readers and stuff like that. And then honestly, as Texan, as a young person, I got convinced by just conservative people around me. Like you can't major in this. It'll it's just not a fucking mm. thing that'll get you a job. Mm. And I kind of lost my interest in it. And then I dropped out of fucking school, became a comedian, you know, destroyed my brain for 15 years. And then all of a sudden, wow, you know, we're in this moment where the stuff is like kind of being brought back up. I realized, you know, oh, I have like kind of this weird semi education in this sort of thing, but I've never sat down and fucking just went page one. Let's start. Let's read this thing. And I didn't also for a long time after we even like started this podcast and stuff, because, you know, before COVID happened, I mean, fucking I was delivering pizzas and shit every day and doing stand up every night and stuff. And when you're working, you know, not that that being a comedian is a fucking salt of the earth job or whatever, but there is this barrier to reading theory where if you are the working class, sometimes you don't have the fucking time to read capital, yeah. right? So there's an inherent contradiction there. And basically what happened is once COVID happened, I, I became actually kind of excited to stop doing stand up for a fucking gap year or whatever, because there's all this shit like this that I would otherwise have a very difficult time sitting down to uh, and like actually getting through and when i saw you talk Tough about book it, to read at a bar for sure yeah yeah for sure i mean you definitely yeah. can't read it if you're doing road comedy and you're like hung over on a greyhound bus to fucking philadelphia or whatever yeah, not ideal yeah I nah, mean, none of it will make sense right <laughs> and uh so I you know i started knocking out all this other shit i wanted to read and then i finally got up to where my stack is down to like all right i'm gonna do it and i noticed it was right around the same time you were talking about doing it. And I wanted to kind of sit down and powwow with you and Sean and my friends here and talk kind of just about like, why read capital? Should everyone read it? You know, these questions are kind of relevant to our circles. What do we think about people that sort of, um, that sort of like, I think like kind of sublimate all this anxiety by just going, I'm not going to read it. There are a lot of people who say, you know, they quote like that big Bill Haywood thing where he says, I, I do not have to read capital because the marks of capital are on my body. I just butchered that quote or whatever. But, but um, <laughs> I tattooed a map of capital onto my body. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't need to know the quote because we've lived the quote. Yeah, yeah, I don't need to quote Big Bill Haywood because the marks yeah. of Big Bill Haywood <laughs> are, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So I guess I just wanted to ask uh, right off the bat, you know, how you came to this this 
mo- this moment where you're like you're gonna mm-hmm. decide to take this plunge. What you what you think about all this stuff, and yeah. uh, and then we'll borrow Sean's brain and we'll learn about value and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, I guess I bought this book, the copy that I have. You know, I bought this shit like five years ago, man. And uh, it was after uh, moving to Atlanta for the first time. It's 2016, actually, moving to Atlanta for the first time and uh, doing grassroots organizing for Sanders before the official campaign ever got to Atlanta. Mm. And um, there was this comrade who now I think has gone on to NYU to study law. But there was this comrade who I went over to his house after the meeting and uh, did dabs. Got really fucking high and drunk. And I woke up in the morning on this couch in this city that I didn't really know with these new friends who I trusted, but I still like, you know, I, I didn't know him. And I was also like s- slowly, newly becoming radicalized. And uh, I like books. I majored in writing and literature. Like I would like to think that I, I read a lot, but probably don't read as much as I should. And I went to his bookshelf and I saw a capital. And uh, the night before that, he was I was asking him, I was like, what's the difference between Marx and Lenin? Right. Because these are terms that I heard thrown around, you know, Marxist, Leninist, and all this. And he was, well, Marx developed the, the theory and Lenin put it into praxis. And I was like, OK. So at that morning, I went to the bookshelf and saw a cap, and I was like, well, let me look at the theory. And I sat there, like, kind of, like, still, like, weed hungover from the night before. Um, and it's probably, like, the sun's coming up, so there's this real, like, coming through the blinds in this living room. And it was just a real nice, like, atmosphere to read in. And I sat there and opened up the book. And when I got to the part about, uh, you know, a thing has two values, a use value and exchange value, there was, like, this chasm or something like that or just this like gateway that opened up in my mind Mm. where and it was very metaphysical where i was like holy shit dude like you know i i think that that haywood quote is appropriate because everyday working people even if they don't read theory they live it you know but understanding how that process actually functions and even just the idea that a thing can be used as what it is, but it can also be exchanged for another thing. I don't know, for some reason, and all the labor inherent within, you know, commodities, for some reason that like, I don't know, this is kind of spiritual for me, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. I get, re- I, re- I get really like stoned sometimes and like, I like, you know, hold an object and I'm like, dude, think about like the work, like the actual work that went into making this. And it's kind of an emotional experience because you think about the exploitation, especially um, most likely people of color. And um, yeah, man, I, I felt that it was time to read it. I got bullied into reading it, actually, because <laughs> I kept saying on Twitter, like, I'm not going to read the shit. And people were like, yo, you should read it. And I finally picked it up. And um, I don't think that everyone needs to. And we can talk more about this. But I think for me to be able to, especially starting this podcast, to be able to make effective arguments you know, um, you know, even if I'm not very confident in what I'm saying, to be able to make effective arguments, I think understanding the the process of how capital is accumulated um, is an effective organizing tool, right? I don't have to quote Marx, but I think by understanding that um, it becomes, it opens up pathways to uh, meet people where they are and talk about exploitation and, you know, these systems of domination. So, you know, that's why I started reading. I felt like I had to. Yeah, know? I mean, I definitely feel personally like if I if I'm gonna run a show like this, I should. That's I probably required, and there is a bit yeah. of an excuse if you are like, oh, I'm fucking you know living on a razor's edge and I'm really busy. But COVID kind of put me in a situation where I was like, 
anyone who bullies me into this is correct. Like, I have no excuse, right? Yeah. So now there's a fucking yeah. time. Yeah. Let me tell you a story, I think, that's kind of similar to what you're talking about with that first chapter about uh, commodities and values. This is the type of story that if I... Um, you know, quit comedy and became like a fun teacher who used my stuff from stand up to explain, you know, theory I would use. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of professors in this world that are, uh, they wish they were comedians. It's the thing you notice when you do what I do. Trust me, I know. <laughs> college, I know. I have a story directly from stand up, which, as we know, is the, uh, you know, the, ph- the ph- philosopher, the philosophy of the street or whatever the fuck people try to say all the time. So I th- thought that was hip hop. Uh, no, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, it's, no, it's jokes. Capital about- Volume One, <laughs> Philosophy of the Street. <laughs> I have e boying. <laughs> <thing. laughs> what is it? <laughs> <laughs> I have this thing where I think it's very corny when people talk about. Uh, comedians as if what they're doing is more heady than it is because it's for the most part uh, it's not a one-to-one like this is not philosophy but there are parallels right and they occur to me sometimes right so I was thinking about this when I was reading Capital today uh, years ago only like over 10 years ago I was sitting around uh, just writing just trying to come up with material to throw around at an open mic uh, that night with a friend of mine, I think it was my friend Chris Cubis, and I think this is how this went down, was that um, I just turned to him and I was like, okay, I, here's something. What the fuck is gold? Like, I was just thinking about gold, and I was like, why is the why is all of human history, like, people fighting over this stupid, like, shiny yellow rock? Like, it doesn't really make any sense. It's, you know, pirates are fucking killing each other over, like, Gold, like why not silver like i didn't understand it and so we started Beautiful talking young about it. pirates yeah. <laughs> i just i was like a funny observation about like humans being you know these ridiculous creatures everyone's just killing each other over this rock that has no it doesn't do anything right it has no intrinsic value right right and so mm. we started talking about it and the third person was like oh well you know the reason gold is valuable is because it's like used in circuitry and motherboards and shit like that. And then we started like making fun of this person. Go, that doesn't fucking make any sense. Yeah. It's a very recent thing. Up, it's just a coincidence. Up until you know, like thirty years ago, no one knew that, and yet it's always been so yeah. valuable. And so then that, this ultimately ended. And I think the bit that we worked out, and this didn't get worked in anyone's act. Like it wasn't a good bit. I just think that writing jokes is an interesting fucking con- like. Uh, Mm -hmm. science or whatever but uh, the bit I think and I'm not going to do it justice it's not going to be funny but I think what we landed on was something about I think Chris went up that night and he was like talking about this he was like yeah somebody tried to tell me it's because of computers but like and I think the punchline was like you don't see like a rapper that comes out and he's got like a whole fucking hard drive hanging around his neck. (laughs) (laughs) See that's kind of funny there's something there like that could have turned into a bit and I was yeah, thinking about yeah, this because yeah. I think that what we didn't realize is that what we were talking about was like these different forms of value that are defined right, exactly. in the beginning of capital, right? The use value versus uh, exchange value and stuff like that. And what I was trying to figure out was like, why does gold have like kind of only this exchange value quality? Um, why is it so valuable? Well, we would yeah. learn in the beginning of capital that it's valuable simply because it's he describes how how much labor time it takes to find like exactly. things like diamonds and golds like gold and stuff like that, and that's what gives it 
you know, the values. And then from there, you fucking kind of expand and then you just realize, oh, you know, the entirety of the thing that we live in is these things in relation to each other. And then, you know, then that becomes the basic framework for how we understand capitalism and then our own lives. And then the next thing you know, you're thinking about this in the back of a fucking IHOP while you're washing dishes. You're like, what the fuck? Or like in the bathroom of a Atlanta bar while you're doing a bump, man. Trust me. I've, 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 I think that like what's interesting what you say too is like, uh, you know, people like I don't even think you have to be inherently left, right? But just even as a young person, maybe or someone who um, is thinking outside of just like convention, like money and thinking about money and what that actually is, you know, and the fact that it has like a paper dollar has no intrinsic value. That's something that I've thought about a lot before I even became radical. Right. You know, yeah. and then when I you know started reading this book, I was like, dude. It was a deconstruction of the material world and the way that uh, knowledge, right, in a capitalist society works that I realized was bullshit, you know? Like, it really was, like, I think, like, like for me, like, a Bible-like experience reading this and kind of, like, having my worldview reshaped and, like, broken down where I could see things for, like, what they actually were. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, I I definitely had that same realization way before I was uh, a Marxist, but I was like, I guess, a a social Democrat because this is like 10 years ago. And then there there was this move your money movement (laughs) that like Ariana Huffington kind of spearheaded, where it's like, take your money out of the big banks, move them to a small bank. (laughs) That's what everybody (laughs) needs to do. (laughs) That's really going to show them. And so I'm like, you know, 18 years old and I walk into Wells Fargo and I like get my, you know, $200 out of the checking account. <laughs> the revolution like, starts today. <laughs> yeah. And they, and I was like relishing for them to ask me why I was moving my money. And I like, they well, never just one question. <laughs> Anders, no. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the realization I was bringing it to the new bank, the small bank, I give them all my money. It's in like a stack of 20s, a small stack of 20s, but still a stack. And they just put it right in the cash register. And I had this idea in my head that it was going to go in a room in the back with my name on a little box. And those bills were going to go in the box. But it's just information. Mm, You know, like most, the vast, vast, vast majority of money is not even a material thing. The bills are such a small uh, portion of of our money supply. Um, And ironically, a more successful bank might have actually had a box with your name on it. <laughs> that would be a better yeah, sell to the consumer for sure. But yeah, the money system and all this shit really that. Yeah, because it is a lot of common sense that just kind of becomes like I remember asking my sister when I was like five, like, why is there money? You know, like a lot of this shit that you grow up asking yourself and asking people around you that just kind of gets drilled out of your head. Like, oh, that's a dumb question. Like, just don't that we've tried that. Someone tried that down the line. This is the way things are. You have all these impulses that then become like crystallized when you Mm. read Capital. It's it's Mm. really phenomenal. Right. Really common experience is like reading shit, something like this and going, wait, I fucking thought about this already. Yeah. You know? I already knew this before I read it. Yeah. I've experienced right. it before I read it. Right. This is one of the few books that takes like a high idea you have in high school and then says, you're right. Here's the math. You 100% nailed it. It's all bullshit. I'm dead in German. Like gently rubbing you on your back as you're like 
tripping from an edible that you ate like three hours ago. Like it's fine. right. Yeah. You're not alone. You're not crazy. Uh, in chapter in volume three, he talks about that. It, uh, it would be really cool if a dog wore sunglasses. <laughs> it's very mind blowing. Well, Sean, what do you think about all this, man? I mean, how'd this happen for you? I'm curious. Oh, for me, um, it was the financial crisis of 2008. Um, I had been, I don't know, anarchist of some, some sort for uh, many years before that. And when it came to 2008 uh, and this massive economic crisis of world capitalism, I realized at that point that I, didn't, I literally did not have the tools in my arsenal to understand what was happening. Right. There, wasn't mm. the, there wasn't a theory adequate to what I needed to know and I wanted to know. Uh, and so I, I said, Oh, like you guys are saying, I finally said, all right, I'm just going to do it. Got together with some friends of mine and we ran it together in a reading group and the rest is history. Mm. Let's talk about that for a second though. Reading group, right? Because for a lot of people, the barrier here to reading this sort of thing seems to be that you sit down and it's the fucking like hieroglyphics. Like it's uh, it's boring. It's (laughs) It's the reason you don't read like school books by yourself because you will stop. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Oh, so dense, like, you know, and the, the style of writing is like, it's, he uses multi-clauses where, like, I have to understand the previous, like, multi-clause, like, sentence before I move on to the next one. And he's like, all right, like, now that we've covered that up, I'm like, dude, I'm still working on, like, <laughs> you know, like, the paragraph before, you know, so it's, it's yeah, it's a little inaccessible. And the jargon right piles up very, very quickly. These, yeah. these terms that, that, that you learn then in, on the next page need to apply, be applied to another term that you're learning and they need to be in relationship with one another. And you have to hold on to a bunch of these as you pour through this thousand page book. Right. Not easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing that people suggest is like to look up these David Harvey lectures. Mm-hmm. This uh, one specific yeah. professor who's just made a chapter by chapter sort of thing. I studied with about the CUNY grad center. Wow. Oh, really? that. I no. took a class called Marxian political economy with David Harvey. Oh, that explains Jesus. so much about you. <laughs> did, you did you go to the pub with him after? I did. That's what I always fantasized about watching the lectures. He'd say like, if you want to ask me a political question, wait till we're at the pub. And I was like, damn, I wish I could go to the pub with all these yeah, we went to the people pub. on my YouTube. Yeah, that's how like, I, I'm there, man. All my <laughs> political questions were answered. Okay. Um, Not really. <laughs> I had to do that myself <laughs> later on. Another, uh, honestly, I'm afraid of beer. I don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's a, what value does this uh, Jaeger bomb have? Huh? Why don't you tell me that? You know, you know what I was thinking the other day too, man. Like when, he, like I don't know. Like I feel like in order for you to like write something like this and kind of prepare for it and think about it. This motherfucker had to be drunk out of his fucking mind. Or like, <laughs> oh, he was. I, or like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just like that sort of like mind expanding, like experience that you have when you like. You know, I honestly, I think he was high on Hegel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading but he uh, would. Michael Heinrich's uh, political biography of Marx, Marx and the birth of the of the modern world right now and uh i mean i'm not he's we're not even close to mark's writing capital yet but he's just getting out of college and one thing is for sure is he was a really 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 bright cantankerous guy he used to love to party a lot he used to love to drink and you know get arrested and all that fun stuff but uh yeah i don't think that uh, a work of this scope is reproducible by any of us these days yeah no he was a freak i mean it's it's funny given the way things are right now with everyone being a basement 
online psycho or whatever, but he has the vibes of like kind of a scary, mm. you know, roommate that you never talk to. And he doesn't talk <laughs> yeah. to you. He's working yeah. on something. He's like, he's a, he's a, an anomaly. It's like, you know, ironically, given what, you know, Marxism and historical materialism are about, it's sprung from probably like an anomalous guy there. Mm. Oddly yeah. that, you know, might be part of uh, how this sort of stuff works. Um, I want to, I want to, if we're, if we're going to talk the theory, I wanted to touch on something. I think you guys were kind of um, circling around, sure. which is the difficulty of reading capital and, mm. um, and also your, the first encounter with capital and how it's really eye opening. And you say, Oh my God, I never thought about it this way. Um, the reason for that is right in the method itself, not just the method of analysis, but the method of writing. Capital isn't a work of economics. It isn't a work of history. It isn't a work of political science. It isn't even a work of political economy. What uh, capital is, and it says it right in the subtitle, is a critique of political economy. So mm. when you're reading the, the book, you'll notice over and over, uh, Marx will say that such and such appears as something else. Such and such appears as this. Uh, that's because the way that he felt he had to write the book was not as a description of capitalism or even an analysis of capital itself. It was, as he understood it, this process of different forms uh, unfurling themselves into more and more complex, in more and more complex ways. And those eventually forming not just the laws of motion of an entire social system, but entire totality, right? It's, 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 it, it, does, it, it, it doesn't stop at the shore of economics, right? right. It goes in, into every asset of human life and social relations. And so in order to do that, and in order to confront the material, he realized that something must be esoteric about the way that capitalism works, because people have been trying to write about it for the 120 years that had been around before that. And it just, it, it didn't, nothing, nothing written seemed to really capture it. And the reason for that is that on its face, on its surface, when you look at the commodity, right, it appears as though things are simple. It appears as though you have independent individual workers, right, who are getting paid. They're, they're getting something at the end of the day. The capitalists are taking the risk and they're making the profit and the landlords take the rent. And it appears as though it's a fair and just arrangement, right? By the law, by the law itself, it is a fair and just arrangement, right? It's contracts, you know, a, a, whole, a whole series of contracts. But what he realized was that not only is capital more obscure than that, but it also takes the form of appearance of obs obscureness. Uh, what's it? Uh, it? It takes the form of appearance of being obscure because there's something about the nature of capitalism itself that obscures itself from all of our eyes. So by the time you get to the labor theory of value, he's applying you know, the Adam Smith and the David Ricardo conception of how you understand the economy. He goes past the labor of theory of value even. If you look at his work, it's an imminent critique of the labor theory of value. He, he, he says even the labor theory of value itself is insufficient to understand this. So if it seems obscure, the text, it's because it had to be written in an obscurantist way in order for Marx to get at the obscuring ways that capitalism appears to us every single day. Right. If that makes I, sense. Oh, yeah, this is why they live is about that's... you have to find secret haunted glasses to yes. break through the obscurity. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that's a I, I'm gonna, people. People are gonna fucking hate me for this, man, because people are talking about this book a couple weeks ago. But um, uh, I like Infinite Jest, right? And that was one of the things too. Is like, yo, if I could read that fucking book, like I could definitely read this shit. Yeah, for right? sure. But Infinite Jest has been accused of being difficult to read, but that's mostly because David Foster Wallace stylized the book construction in such a way that um, kind of uh, proved his point or his main thesis of the book that it's much easier for you, but less intellectually fulfilling to sit down and like binge like a Netflix series or something like that than read a book, right? Like like simple pleasures versus more sort of like um, pleasures of the mind, I guess, right? Um, are harder and more difficult to engage with. And he structured the book in that way to prove that point. And capital, because capitalism is obscure and also like fractal and concentric sort mm-hmm. of, the book is structured in that way. And even like his phrasing in the sentences where he's building upon ideas and repeating things over and over and over again. And I'd actually argue that the repetition is the one thing that made it a little e- bit easier to read. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, Oh, you're just saying this a different way and expanding upon it to make sure that I got it. You know? Yeah. There, there's um, for years and years into the, into the middle of the 20th century and after the 20th century, um, people who read Capital, and there weren't many of them. They were like professors, and there were some people in the Soviet Union, uh, some people in the streets too. They always thought that the last section of Chapter 1, Volume 1 of Capital on the uh, fetishism of the commodity, they thought that was just a weird like metaphysical thing that Marx threw into Capital. Uh, it was kind of an afterthought. They, they didn't really seem, it didn't seem that important to, to understand commodity fetishism. But more and more now, uh, since other texts like the Grunrisse has, has come out and a lot more of his manuscripts, uh, it appears that Marx put that in the first chapter, the commodity fetishism, because all of capitalism itself is a fetish, right? It is all mm. obscure. It is all look, taking our it's own social, our, our own creative and social <laughs> powers and, uh, and uh, applying them or believing that they come from somewhere on the outside. So there's like an exoteric way of reading Marx, which is about the labor theory of value. It's about understanding what money is and that can get you pretty far. But then underneath that, and the reason why you should read the whole thing is there is an esoteric reading of capital, which is about literally critiquing the categories of how we think about capital itself. Mm. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Aaron, you were reminding me of, uh, there's like a, a genre of literature called ergodic literature where the way that like the book is set up is part of the story. So like a good example of this is house of leaves, which is a, yes. a book about a guy going crazy in like a house. And as he yeah. goes crazier and crazier, the, the letters start to fall off the page and mm. stuff like that. And there's an entire chapter that's just one word on a page. Mm. You know, you flip through it really fast, like a crazy person. Mm. Be cool if, uh, um, if uh, capital was written this way to make it more fun, <laughs> people have also Quite the att- opposite. Yeah, well, people have also attempted that sort of thing, right? So there's like um, recently a manga uh, is like become really popular in Japan of just oh, yeah. someone made fucking you know Japanese comics out of capital in an attempt to make it more palatable, I suppose. And that is something that I think you know we probably attempt at in doing all this podcasting sort of stuff. But there is like this. Um, I just think Marx himself said about it, which is that there is no royal mm-hmm. road to science. And I think it's important because mm-hmm. he's talking about how, you know, what you're going to read is going to be really fucking hard to get through your head. And it's because it's the first step to understanding a science and mm-hmm. the scientific aspect of 
what he's doing in Capital is probably why this is something that I would argue like everyone should read if they get the chance because um, you know when you think of like obscure theoretical texts and philosophy and stuff like that people often think of them as uh, just a like a, um, a buffet of different ways of looking at things that you can pick up think about go I don't know maybe that one works maybe that one doesn't but with capital I mean you know, it is the they live glasses where once you have the foundational, yeah. like ontological mm. dynamic ways of understanding other things, it's a it's a lens that then you can look at any other thing with. And that gives you all the power of reading. It's know. it's the totality. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it honestly, a, it's a total theory. It honestly may because I started reading volume one when I was like a year out of college and I still kind of had this like high of like just being able to read a lot and you know write a lot uh that kind of has been dwindling ever since um but the thing that struck me the most was like just it made work so much easier because i was like i understand what this is a lot more sharply and like i don't take it shit at work personally now i'm just here i'm i'm just a vessel for fucking labor uh i'm i'm you're not a human i'm not a human one around the clock let's just fucking get it over with um but the thing that Jake's mentioning science, and I think that's an important thing uh, to point out because it, obviously it's a very like complicated text. But I guess the three sort of blocks of inquiry that have kind of been attributed to capital are, is the political economy, which we mentioned earlier, the critique of political economy, as well as the uh, German theoretical philosophy, Hegel and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's the utopian socialism, mm -hmm. which I think was kind of like what where the scientific marxism comes out of it was kind of like what uh that's what he was reacting to was like the french utopians who were mm -hmm. like socialism is going to be a sea of lemonade <laughs> and we just gotta like will it into being and that was kind of you know a seems like kind of a problem for the socialist movement is they didn't have that enough people at that time who were like sitting down and actually studying economy and and like actually going through this shit and trying to make a like a nuanced complex um case for socialism uh and you know that's kind of what in a way marx kind of rejects is that old way of, of approaching socialism but at the same time i want this is something i've always wondered i guess this is a question for sean because all right you know there's a there's a line somewhere in marx or maybe Engels too where they're talking about they, they're not interested in the cook shops of the future. Sure. Right. And that's always used as, oh, they're not utopians. Marx and Engels are not utopians. And one of the biggest misconceptions about Marxism is that it's about sketching out a communist society. And it's not exactly. really. Right. There are some, you know, very basic like sketches uh, in terms of, you know, use value and stuff like that. But they're not writing out, you know, what things would look like. Um, but what, do you think it's really fair to say that they're anti-utopian? Because I, I just hear so many very, very radical people who are like way to the left of me saying I'm not a utopian. Mm -hmm. And to that, they attribute uh, that quote about the cook shops of the future. Yeah, where no. they like it seems like that's what they were, they were like, that's not our job. But if someone else wants to fucking write about fantasy land that's go for it. That, but that's not what we're trying to do here. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's one that people have been grappling with for a long time. I think when we look at the, 
battle that Marx and Engels had in real time versus uh, the Proudhonists, uh, the utopian socialists, um, the Owenites uh, in their time, is that it's not... The, ter- the term utopia in this case is not quite what we think it is. Utopia isn't, at the time, wasn't simply like um, sketching out like a, a good plan for the future that wasn't realistic. The utopian socialists, uh, as they were called, their, their method of achieving socialism was the real issue, right? So it was oftentimes like a rich person like Robert Dale Owens who would sketch together the perfect society or Fourier would come up out of their, out of their brains with like the perfect society and try to enact it paternalistically in the w- real world for the working class. They tried to essentially make the plan separate from the creation of that plan itself. So the utopian socialists were critiqued by Marx rightfully, for not understanding the liberation of the working class being the task of the working class itself. So Mm -hmm. the danger of utopian socialism isn't that you're making too many plans. I think planning is really smart and Marx had plans and Engels had plans at the time, but utopian in the Elizabeth sense Elizabeth Warren uh, has plans. Has a plan. <laughs> but utopian in the sense of like trying to apply your own personal uh, idiosyncratic vision to other people, right? Mm. Upon society. Mm. That's the utopian aspect that he critiqued and we should critique. It's something that it's has a strategy to come that out wasn't of. explored by the Warren campaign is a left <laughs> flank of Bernie Sanders as a utopian. Oh yeah, but she has all the plans. There's gonna be big rock candy mountains, <laughs> cigarettes that grow on trees. Practical utopian. <laughs> yeah, big structural. You get it. You get it. Yo, so. I just want to add. We're talking about utopian socialists. I just want to add. Yo, y'all know that the dude who made started Gillette. Like the shaving company was a utopian socialist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. We're yeah, just yeah. thinking of the perfect shave. <laughs> the best a man can get. Communism. <laughs> yeah. No, we talked about this a little bit. I can't remember what episode it was, but there are a lot of the like weird utopian socialist societies that were just sort of kicking around in early America mm-hmm. uh, d- devolved into cults that then devolved into like people that sell silverware, yes. like, <laughs> <laughs> like Tupperware. Uh, what do you call them? MLMs and shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, New Harmony like, famously. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause we forget these in America too, before the uh, 20th century and even somewhat during the 20th century, there were a ton of these utopian societies all over the place. Like, during Marx's time and, you know, um, like that's something that some, I think about maybe we should bring back. I, I, I worry that that is uh, that has its, its disadvantages um, to it as well uh, the, strategically. But the, like the, that's that's a history that should be remembered as well. Good. Mm-hmm. The, the way that those were formed in the United States, which, as you said, is a hotbed of utopian socialist communities, especially in the 19th, but into the 20th century, the way that those were formed. And the way that they ended up playing playing out, which you guys are completely right about, they turn into cults and then they turn into basically like corporations, uh, is the perfect example of what Marx said not to do, right? Mm-hmm. It's because those people didn't understand where exploitation comes from, where domination comes from, that they ended up taking out a lot of the non-hierarchical aspects of their communes, right? They took out a lot of injustice out of their community, but they never actually tackled ultimately what makes those things form 
you know, themselves, which is of course value production, right? So the idea was right. if you could just create like a really efficient factory and all the workers, you know, could live in barracks housing and everybody was equal, everybody was free, everybody did the same amount of stuff, everybody got a labor voucher that was equal to the same, that you would magically, you know, create a socialist society. As it turned out, you can't do that. You know, and we saw capitalism always being reproduced in these because they didn't get at the heart of what needs to be negated in capitalism, which is value production itself. Hmm. Yeah. Capitalism is like a hydra. You have to cut the fucking head off and the heart out of it. Otherwise, more the yeah. necks just more, start growing back. More values will pop out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we were talking about it earlier, um, but like, should everyone read capital? And I don't think so, but at the same time, um, it's like what you were going back to saying, Sean. It's like if you don't understand like how this process, like uh, how it how it functions, and the true nature of capital and how exploitation is facilitated, um, and maybe it's because like I'm not a Posadas, like you know, I guess I'm an ML or whatever. But you know, I just I just think about uh, there being um, that segment of the working class who has read theory. And is able to communicate it um, to people. And I think, you know, obviously in the United States, this this becomes difficult when you uh, factor in, you know, uh, interracial like class solidarity and trying to achieve that, you know. Um, but it's it's like what I was telling you, Sean, in my first episode, like just using simple examples, right, mm. to highlight surplus value, right. Um, do people feel like they make um, what they make at work is what they deserve, right? It's what they're owed, right? It's what they're worth. And most people will say no, but you don't, they don't have to, I think necessarily read this theory to get that idea. But I do think it's up to individuals who are disciplined enough, right? To kind of dig through this stuff, to find, you know, arguments and, perspectives and pull things out to apply to people's lives. I I think that's exactly right. I don't think every worker needs to read capital, but I feel like I'm not pointing any fingers or naming any names, but there's a lot of people who go around calling themselves (laughs) Marxists that are not qualified to, <laughs> to weigh classical in on, Marxists, right? Uh, to weigh in on what capital <laughs> itself even said. Right. So like, I, I'm, you can call yourself a Marxist if you want, but unless you've read capital or at least you understand the theory, you should be very, very wary uh, to open your mouth about these things because <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things that Marxism is that Marx never wrote. And a lot of that gets mixed up with Leninism, for better or for worse, gets mixed up in other ideologies, reformist type social, social democratic politics. But like, unless you mm. understand what the theory actually is, then you shouldn't go around saying Marx said this or Marx would have done that. If Marx were alive, he would blah, blah, blah. Because I, I see those people online and I've met those people in real life. Most of the time, like they, they, they've lost the plot. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly probably guilty of, uh, especially, you know, when I was younger and stuff, just uh, over-representing that sort of thing because it's a fucking cool-sounding word. I don't know. Oh, it's, you know? It's, I know, right? It's, um, it's cool to be a Marxist now. The, <laughs> well, the, the other thing is that, you know, if you've fucking read readers and you've uh, read sections or, I mean, honestly, there's some level to which I fucking feel like I've definitely had some osmosis from fucking Twitter from just being online all the time because (laughs) sometimes a thing happens where someone misuses the term commodity fetishism and then everyone talks about it and you go, right, here's some really perverted version of like a primer on a thing that Mm -hmm. I vaguely remember. Twitter is good for that, actually. (laughs) It's easy to convince yourself that like, maybe I don't need to read it because I think I already kind of know the basics of what it is, but I think that that's probably not true because there is this... uh, 
quality to it. And Harvey was talking about this when I was watching him, like where it's no, the, the entire thing is a work in and of itself. Mm. That's cohesive that you can't hunt and peck right, and just exactly. sort of take different pieces. Yeah. Because when you take those little pieces and you think that that is Marxism, you end up becoming one of these wild take people and, online who just does mad lives. And, 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 that, and, that, and that's yeah. the exact reason why I think if you're, if you consider yourself a communist, if you're an, organizer or like you want to be spreading the good word of Marxism, you should read it because by the end of it, it's not, you're not going to, it's not going to be little grab bags of Marx quotes here. or It's not going to be like, well, Marx said this, Marx said that it's not just a totalizing theory, but it's also a method of analysis. So as soon as you can, you yourself can get that method down and then you can look at your concrete situation, the situation in the world around you, you can apply that method to it, see how the forms determine the content and understand the world a whole lot better. Right. And there's this big fallacy that you see people get into all the time where like, they're not like you can become someone who's so orthodox with their Marxism that you don't understand that, Marxism itself would require you to analyze the thing you're talking about a little bit more. It's than, dialectical itself. Right. Like don't mm. dog, being dogmatic about it is actually yeah. not using right. it correctly. Right. Yes, exactly. yes. Yes. Yeah. And so, but that does, I mean, I don't know that kind of overlays interesting with that question you asked Aaron a little bit, because I think uh, I'm also reading a little bit about a fucking, um, you know, the Russian revolution and stuff like that. And, and then the mm. praxis part, you're talking about the, the, line in between uh, Marxist theory and then Lenin's praxis, there are these like dry runs where people attempt to, um, you know, sort of put it into practice in all these different ways that fail. And then there are like interesting things that happen where, yeah, you can't literally just go out into the peasants and start reading obscure theory and expect this thing to take <laughs> no. hold. So then you've got like I think Martov. What was it? It was, mm-hmm. it was like um, the social democrat of uh, of Russia. Yeah, yeah. It's like you meet people where they are and uh, yes. you know sort of like re- recalibrate. Like you can be the person who's read theory and then put it into words that are more like um, palatable, mm-hmm. like a little easy to read pamphlets and stuff like that. And that's and, where... And, and you could be the person on Twitter that's arguing about what Mark said, and you would be right in that instance because you'd actually know. Right. You would be the <laughs> one correctly applying that, not the asshole with like a Stalin avatar who's just butchering the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you want to be that guy well, or I think, gal? <laughs> I think that that's probably a good argument for like, yeah, uh, you know, everyone, everyone of us should be fucking well-versed in this sort of stuff because because uh, in theory, what a podcast is in this you know specific way that we're doing these shows is uh, is kind of a little bit of that. Uh, you know, I definitely try not to take myself too seriously in that regard at all because I'm a fucking prof- professional idiot. Like I, <laughs> yeah, right. I'm part of the dumbass left. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. stand up is a thing where you pretty much destroy your brain as a job. So like, I'm not <laughs> gonna pretend like I am as uh, you know smart as my colleagues here, but I'm gonna attempt, I guess, at least to not fall into that fucking uh, the fallacies of those Twitter people that we're talking about and shit. You know, right. I have to say, I I feel like it is my kind of goal when I think about this stuff and like getting, you know, people on board with whatever is I think it's important and maybe you guys disagree. I don't know to get as many people specifically in America to call themselves socialist. Like that's more important to me than any other term right now. And I think it doesn't really bother me that a lot of people come into that with, oh, that means healthcare. That means Mm -hmm. I have more money. You know, because that's a really good starting point mm-hmm. yeah. and you can continue to sort of sharpen their understanding uh, with reading groups or just, you know, conversations. And mm. 
Uh, some that's going to involve a lot of people reading capital. Um, but I think we don't want to go down a route where that's a mandatory thing mm. for everybody who wants to be involved in, in social movements. Cause that's just not tenable. It's not you know? going to happen. I mean, yeah. In terms of organizing the question of, you know, uh, uh, how to best enact the lessons we've learned from this economics textbook. I think we can all even just look around us and look at how the right organizes objectively more successful in America right now than we are. And mm. it's by never telling anyone to read a book. <laughs> <laughs> it's by saying, welcome, you're on our team now. We will teach you shit later. Here's some blogs, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Uh, that, uh, kind of idea to Anders where it is important to me that people identify as socialists. Obviously that's not a requirement for like, I mean, the best we could hope for in the United States is a social democracy, right? I don't think that should even be a requirement of working class people. But I think that um, when I was taking my political science course in community college, my professor made a very stark differentiation between uh, liberalism, conservatism, conservatism and socialism, right? And um, I mean, I distilled that into there are conservatives and then there are socialists, right? That's the way I did it, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, I think that was helpful because socialism is anti-capitalist, right? And I think that like, you know, uh, and I guess Trump and Biden are like indirectly helping us out now because if you're a Marxist, you're an enemy of the state. And if you're like a socialist, like for the Democrats, you should be shunned away, but, you know, have your vote, you know, give your vote to them anyway. But I think that that language and using that word really helps people in capital, right, really helps people understand the world in a fresh perspective, the more granular perspective and allows themselves to see where they are, their role in this chain of oppression and exploitation. Right. It's solidarity is what right. it is in class consciousness. Right. You know, we've we've spent what sixty, seventy, eighty minutes now uh, convincing you out there to read Capital, <laughs> either by yourself or with friends, or if you're a dumb dumb, to you know ask your smart friend to read Capital and they can tell you what it's all about. But it's it the battle doesn't end there, unfortunately, because um, while the analysis that you get, this total analysis uh, from Capital, is a very powerful one, I think looking back on, on how my life has been and how the struggles in my lifetime uh, have went so often what capital will give you is, um, a key on what not to do. <laughs> right? Mm, right. <laughs> um, so much of, uh, so much of the political battles that happen on the ground, I'm talking about real ones, not like shit on Twitter, um, need people who, who know the theory, but are also good political organizers and good thinkers. What I'm saying is it's not like you read Capital and you have the key to everything that everybody needs to be doing in order to make socialism happy, happen. Like It doesn't have that within it. However, it is the starting point for thinking reasonably, rationally, scientifically about how to abolish Capital. So it's not sufficient, but it's certainly necessary. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Aaron, why don't you tell my audience about your new show, man? I listened to uh, the first few episodes, and it's great. Yeah, uh, real quick, man. My first show is um, basically chronicling our descent into barbarism and uh, the radical left struggle against it. Be talking to uh, influential figures on the left, including uh, journalists, activists, uh, content creators, uh, like everyone here. And um, you know, I thought when I started it, it was going to be kind of a really doom obsessed, doom pill show of always loved apocalyptic uh, movies and shit, but uh, it's actually like every episode is kind of ended on um, 
you know, like the only way out is like through, right? Together, right? And we don't we don't have to uh accept either the the two miserable options of this election or just the uh complete dominance of capital, right? And the reality of ecological collapse, even though that, that shit's definitely gonna happen. But uh it's a it's a political pro- uh education project and um you know something that I hope people really uh enjoy and learn from and that'll help their own journey of uh radicalization. So yeah. All right. Oh, that was a good pitch. Yeah. <laughs> a time of monsters. Definitely Hell dig yeah. the vibe. Uh, I think Twitter fans monsters? will maybe... What is my mother-in-law visiting? Yes. <laughs> there oh, you go. No, you did not. All right. All right. Let's <laughs> not here in the plug section. I'm going to play the monster match again in its entirety, and then we'll be gone. The match the of monsters. Song, the monster oh, yeah. All right. Well, folks, um, in summation... Capitalism is a fetish. Mm. You can jack off to it, yes. but don't do it at work. <laughs> or in Bolivia. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks we, for having me on, y'all. Yeah, yeah. man. Yeah, Thanks it's good to uh, finally meet. And uh, yeah, let's uh, get the rest of our plugs out of here, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, me? Go ahead. Uh, Antifada, you know it. You listen to Pod Damn America. I know you know it. This is like my fifth time being on the show, and we've had <laughs> these guys on like six or seven times. So you know where to go. You know what to do. As a worker on Twitter.com, a name that continues to piss off all the right people. I love it. So <laughs> you can follow me there, listen to my show, and uh, that's it. All right. Uh, Alex, go ahead. Hello. You can follow me on Twitter at Patak Jokes, where I will share my content, but also uh, uh, post every dumb thought I ever have that I should probably keep to myself a lot of the time. And you can listen to my podcast on Dragon Ball Z at Ballin' Out Super or my radio show, Theater of Delights. And that is it for me. At Anders Lee here on Twitter, Dursley on Instagram. Uh, shout out to <laughs> workers at in uh, DC at Canna Bliss at the or wait no it's called Holistic Wellness. Yeah, they've unionized. They're in uh, USFW Local 400 now. It's a, it's a nice. cannabis dispensary in DC in Deanwood that is unionized, um, and which just made me think of when I was. Reading uh, Capital Volume One, I had a roommate who would, we would uh, roll our joints on the book, so it's nice. very useful for that as well. I, if you get, I did that shopping. for years before I read it. Actually, <laughs> oh yeah, there yeah. you go. <laughs> That's how you warm up to read it. Guys, yes. you shouldn't do that. You're going to damage the book. <laughs> it's okay to have fun on here, but you know the book has value. And- I uh, <laughs> I use a little rubber hose to tie capital around my arm before I shoot up heroin. <laughs> and it makes me think really hard about value. <laughs> All right, and of course injected into my veins. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, Aaron, you got a time of monsters and your Posadas trap god. Hell yeah, besides Trap God on Twitter, that's uh, Trap God, Trap GD, underscore Trap GD. Yeah, follow me for the shit posting, man. Okay. He's I get high and I tweet. That's what I do. He's, he's so right? good at it, folks. You want <laughs> Thank to you for your him. service. I know. You're so good at Twitter. I was, for part of me, was like, is this guy a cop? He's too good. <laughs> but I think it's just that you do good <laughs> posts. <laughs> he's just high nah, enough. I, I just dropped out of. I just dropped out of a writing and lit major, man. So, like, uh, instead of writing the next great American novel, I just went to Twitter, which I think is unparalleled. Yeah. You said you were a community college, too? Yeah. Yeah. I went to Word. community college. Solidarity. Yeah. I also did 
Did two years. In- <laughs> I did, I did <laughs> six. <laughs> oh, nice. Cool. All right. I like this new trend of talking about college like it's prison. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How long was Six your years, man. college was a prison? Not easy. I mean, community college, uh, most of them are literally designed by the people who design prisons. That's so. true. <laughs> Very true. Mm. You mean the ruling class? Damn. Oh. Yes, I do. All right. Yes, play a spooky song. Play a spooky song right now. <laughs> I'm going to play it. Uh, we have merch on our fucking, you know, you look all our shit up on our show notes and stuff. Uh, and our Patreon. Please sign up for our Patreon if you enjoy our show. You want bonus episodes? And uh, please subscribe, uh, subscribe and review us. Give us a positive review on iTunes to counteract all the people that hate me oh, on the should internet. Should we be doing that, too? I never told people to do that. It's yeah. good for the algorithm. Right, yeah. Um, a fascist reviewed Jake today, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now, hell yeah. Y'all go listen to Pod Damn America, though. I, I, love, I love that podcast, man. You guys uh, were one of the f- uh, few podcasts in my weekly rotation when I was oh, working in the kitchen. Oh, so, shit. Yeah, man, I'm very familiar with y'all. Yeah. Listen That's to that good. shit. We're popular in kitchens. Big kitchen podcast. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, I'll be You're playing. popular among the word, the, the uh, dumbass left. Yeah, the dumb, oh, yeah. dumbass. The back that, of house dumb left. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I'll be playing us out with some <laughs> listener music that I haven't decided yet. Here you go.